We'll read together verses 1 through 9, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when He sat down, His disciples came to Him. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then the verse we'll consider this morning. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have sung about you, we have sung to you, we've prayed about you, we've prayed to you, we've confessed the faith that we most surely believe to you. We come now to your word. We believe this to be the oracles of God, preaching of the Bible. We do pray, come, Lord, through preaching. Talk to each one of us. Speak to us. We pray, Father, that you would help us to realize the wonderful truth, the wonderful ideals, the beautiful vision that's held out for us as your people in this passage. We pray that we would be the blessed people, that we would live the blessed life, that the blessed reward would be ours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We've been in a series, within a series, within a series over the past couple of months. We are considering these verses famously referred to as the Beatitudes, a series of blessings that are pronounced within a larger study in the Sermon on the Mount, within a larger study of Matthew's gospel. We are nearing the end of our consideration of these Beatitudes, and as we are, I want to remind you again of some of the fundamental matters we observed about them at the start of our consideration of Matthew 5. Three things in particular I wish to remind you of. The first is to remind you that these Beatitudes are given Uh, to those who are already the Lord's disciples. Okay, so in John chapter 3, Nicodemus asked the Lord uh, how one could enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says that it's through the new birth. It's through being born again, being regenerated, being given the gift of faith and repentance. That's how you enter the kingdom. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount are about life in the kingdom. For those who have been born again, who have trusted Christ, who have already become followers of Jesus, well, what is their life to look like? What will the blessed life be? This is a sermon, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, given, and these Beatitudes are given to those who already are in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The second thing I would remind you is that we observe something about that word blessed, which starts every one of these verses. Uh, that word blessed can certainly convey the idea that, you know, happy are the people who live this way, who adopt these virtues. They're happy, they're blessed, their lives are favored of God, but it means more than that. Uh, This blessed life, these blessed virtues uh, refer to God's approval. Uh, These are the kinds of people who have God's seal. He owns them, He approves of them. Blessed are these people. God is pleased to own and approve of those who live in this kind of a way, who live the blessed life that God Himself owns. And then you'll notice, thirdly, 
uh, we observe that affixed to each of these Beatitudes is some kind of glorious promise or incentive or reward, and we are to view them as such. And blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, etc. For. And then the Lord states things that will be true of them. There are rewards given, incentives given, there are promises made. It's a striking thing as a child of God and as a follower of Jesus Christ just to read the blessings here, the rewards that are promised. If you're a Christian here this morning, or if you become a Christian, these things will be true of you. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You shall be comforted. You shall inherit the earth. You shall be satisfied. You shall receive mercy. You shall see God, and as we read this morning, you shall be called sons of God. So we have seen over the last several weeks that the blessed ones are those who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart, and now we come to the penultimate of these beatitudes, the second to last. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That word peacemaker in the original Greek, is only used one time in the whole Bible. It's here in this passage. The word peace is used many times. The idea of making peace comes up many times, but that word, that title, peacemakers, it's only used here in this text. Well, let's consider what it means together. There's three questions I'd like to ask of Matthew 5, 9. Three questions I'd like to ask of this text that will frame our exposition of this passage, our consideration of Matthew 5, 9 this morning. These three questions are as follows. First, we want to know who are the peacemakers. Secondly, how may we become peacemakers? And thirdly, what is true of the peacemakers? Three questions. The first is this, who are the peacemakers? Point number one, who are the peacemakers? And we'll spend more time on this head than the other two. I wonder when you think of a peacemaker, uh, what comes to your mind? What kinds of traits mark a peacemaker? How do peacemakers conduct themselves? How do they act? What kinds of behaviors and attitudes do they adopt that tend toward uh, peacemaking? What comes to your mind? If I just give you that word, peacemaker, and you had to fill in a profile, what sorts of things come to your mind? Uh, let me first identify a couple things peacemaking is not, okay? Uh, first, a peacemaker is not a personality type, uh, contrary to the Enneagram. So Enneagram nines, they say you're a peacemaker. That's not the idea at all behind this word in the Bible. It's not simply uh, the person who's easygoing and affable, or the person who's conflict-averse or complacent. Uh, peacemaking, according to the Bible, is a fruit of God's Spirit. That's not a personality type at all. None of these Beatitudes are speaking of personality types. They're speaking of gifts and graces that God is pleased to give His people through regeneration. And moreover, I'll just note, that's kind of a popular idea of peacemaking. It's a personality type. It's an ironic person. It's a, an easygoing person or a person who's conflict-averse. Uh, it's often those who are easygoing and conflict-averse who create the greatest trouble and who can actually perpetuate conflict uh, by minimizing issues, ignoring problems, avoiding hard conversations, becoming a doormat, passing the plate. By these things, conflict and division and alienation are often created and perpetuated. Now, through avoidance and evasion, these folks will often miss opportunities to contribute positive peace to situations and relationships. Now, they fail to solve problems. 
have failed to break down barriers, to reconcile individuals, and instead they settle for a kind of sham notion of peace, which is often simply nothing other than the momentary absence of hostility. Now, peacemaking is not passivity, uh, it's not complacency, uh, nor is it perpetually mollifying and placating uh, people in our lives to avoid strife. I imagine we all know someone like this. Maybe you are someone like this. Uh, in your family, there's sort of the, the peacemaker type. And they're the kind that whenever things get tense, they just sort of fade to the background. They sort of back out of the room. They're not trying to have the hard conversations. Well, such people are not the kind of peacemakers being talked about here. And on a, on a more serious note, uh, friends, the husband who refuses uh, to talk to his wife about her sin patterns that are harming the children and becoming destructive to the family because I don't want to talk to her because, you know, ain't mom happy, ain't nobody happy. That's how the saying goes. Uh, such a man is not a peacemaker. Uh, the wife who allows her husband to abuse the children and fails to address his harmful behavior is not a peacemaker. Uh, the elder or deacon in the church who is passive on the board and fails to speak up when he sees serious issues in the leadership is not a peacemaker. Uh, the board member or the person on the team at work who shirks their responsibility because they don't want to deal with the fallout or the drama or the difficulty is not a peacemaker. Such people make the world worse and harder uh, for others. So I say peacemaking is not a personality type. It's not the temperamentally passive person or the person who is conflict averse. I don't think of it in those terms. Uh, but secondly, I would say peacemaking uh, or making peace is not the same thing as keeping the peace uh, or peace at all costs. There are some who will have peace at the cost of just about anything, or at least what they think of as peace. Uh, sometimes this could look like peace at the cost of integrity, uh, peace at the cost of truth, or peace at the cost of righteousness. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the name Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain was the prime minister before Winston Churchill in England. Uh, do you know the famous slogan that is most associated with Neville Chamberlain? Does anyone know the slogan? Peace in our time. Do you know when Neville Chamberlain said that? He said that in a speech in reference to the Munich Agreement, which was one of the greatest acts of cowardice in human history. Uh, the Munich Agreement was an agreement with Adolf Hitler basically to cede to him half of Czechoslovakia and to break all the vows and promises and treaties that England had made to support Czechoslovakia in such an instance. But Neville Chamberlain wanted peace in our time, which would mean warfare ultimately for England's sons and daughters. Uh, in, in, in truth, Winston Churchill proved to be the actual peacemaker. Uh, Neville Chamberlain was not a peacemaker at all. He proved to be a coward. And friends, I'll just say if peacemaking uh, requires moral cowardice as the price, it's too high a price to pay. Uh, peacemaking may involve, for a time, momentary war to secure peace. No, peacemaking is not a personality type. It's not the passive or conflict-diverse person, nor is peacemaking merely peacekeeping or peace at all costs. But what then can we say about it positively? What is the Bible's idea of this virtue of peacemaking? Uh, I first say three things positively about peacemaking. We're asking the question, who are the peacemakers? These things would be true of the peacemakers. Uh, first of all, we should emphasize peacemaking, as I've already said, is a fruit of the Spirit of God. Peacemaking is a Christian fruit that God works within us by regeneration. It's not a native personality type I was born with. Rather, it's a grace and a gift that God works within the human heart through new birth and regeneration. We read in Galatians 5, the list there of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Peacemaking is an evangelical grace that God works within us as His people through regeneration and new birth. And it is a grace He is pleased to enlarge in us as we grow in Christ. It's a gift given to us when we're born again as we ourselves are reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. We are brought at peace with God. And so He gives to us, He regenerates us, He changes us, causes us to be born again, and He gives to us the grace and gift of peace. And then as we grow in Christ and as we're sanctified, this gift and grace is enlarged in us. We grow as peacemakers through the new nature that God Himself supplies. So the first thing I would say is that peacemaking is a fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, peacemaking is a Christian virtue to be actively pursued. Yes, it's a gift of God's Spirit that He causes to uh, be implanted within us, but it is a Christian virtue we also, as the Lord's people, continue to pursue actively. That is to say, it requires active and ongoing effort and obedience on the part of the Christian to pursue peace, to promote peace, to work for peace, to create peace. We don't drift into peace in our lives. Now, if you just sort of put the, the plane of our lives on autopilot, we drift into strife and conflict and war. I've used this illustration numbers of times with reference to holiness, but you know, like when you go to the beach, I remember this as kids, and I'm very anxious about this now as a dad with young kids. You, you plant the, the umbrella, and you set up the chairs and the cooler with LaCroix and everything in one spot, and then the kids run out into the water, and they're just frolicking around and playing, you know, whatever you do at the beach. They're in the water, and what happens? You don't recognize what's happening, but the tide sort of causes you to drift away. And I remember as a kid, I'd look up, and I'd think, where's my family? And I'd see, you know, down about 100 yards, there they were, because while I was playing in the ocean, I drifted. Okay, well, as God's people, we don't drift into holiness. We drift into sin. We don't drift into peace. We drift into conflict and strife and war. And what that means is that if we are to be peacemakers, we must actively pursue this as a Christian virtue. Holiness requires us to be on high alert. If we're to cling to Christ and follow Him and hold fast to His commands and put off the old man and put on the new man, it will take active effort and engagement on our parts. We must be alert. We must pursue these virtues. It's that way with peace. Peacemakers are active. They are pursuing this Christian virtue. The peacemakers are those who can actually change things in life. They are those who make their world. They are those who take action, those who stand against the tide, those who shape their world and orient it toward peace. Peacemaking is a craft. It's a Christian discipline, a discipline that we give ourselves to as the Lord's people. Therefore, in order to be a peacemaker, as God calls us to, one must purpose to adopt actively various behaviors and attitudes. We must pursue various ideals and goals. We must aim at peace, and we will steadily come to embody the conduct and the character traits that make for peace. Third thing now I would say positively about what peace is. So it is a grace or gift that the Lord gives us through regeneration. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It is a Christian virtue to be actively pursued. Thirdly, and this is crucial for to understand what Jesus means here in Matthew 5, 9. Peacemaking is inherently positive and constructive. Peacemaking is inherently positive and constructive. What do I mean by that? Peacemaking in the Bible and in this text is not just the absence of something. It's the presence 
of something. Peacemaking produces something positive. It creates something that wasn't there before. So don't think peacemaking is simply the absence of conflict or war or tension. Peacemaking is not merely the pre uh, preservation of the status quo. No, rather, peacemaking is a matter of creating a kind of wholeness and well-being and prosperity for people. Peacemakers repair gaps. Peacemakers heal breaches. They reconcile people and bring together again what was broken. They want to produce in this world unity and soundness and health and wholeness wherever they go. Peacemaking is a proactive and positive thing. It's not a passive thing. Peacemaking is bringing something into a situation that wasn't there before, a kind of wholeness and unity and positive peace. And therefore, peacemakers are the most wonderful kinds of people in the world. They bring to situations, they bring to families, they bring to churches, they bring to work environments, a glorious and wholesome kind of unity and wholeness and richness and life and prosperity that wasn't there before. So putting this all together then, the peacemakers are one, those who have been born again and have had this grace work within them by the Spirit of God. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. Second, the peacemakers are those who see peacemaking as a virtue to be actively pursued. They give themselves to peacemaking in an active and ongoing way as a kind of spiritual discipline, as a matter of active obedience to Christ. They are those who are pursuing this and putting effort toward this. Thirdly, the peacemakers are those who are positive and constructive. They are those who create wholeness and well-being and prosperity and unity and peace wherever they go. They are in the business of producing something, of actively creating something. Now, before leaving this first point, it's worth asking, uh, what then are the kinds of behaviors and attitudes that are to mark peacemakers? I see it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a virtue to be pursued. It's a positive thing. But then what do peacemakers do? According to the Bible, what are the kinds of attitudes they take? Behaviors and conduct that they pursue. And I'd like to simply state in sort of rapid succession the kinds of things that mark peacemakers according to the Scriptures. I'm not going to dwell on any one of these. I'm going to state them in rapid succession, so we'll kind of get this kind of whole picture. I think by the end of these points, you'll see what I'm talking about. I have nine things I'm going to state, okay, uh, fairly quickly. Number one, peacemakers forbear with weaknesses and sins of others. Peacemakers forbear with the weaknesses and sins of others. Peacemakers are forbearing. They're long-suffering. They expect to be sinned against. That doesn't surprise them. They're expecting that to happen. They expect to be inconvenienced and disappointed by the failings of others, but they forbear. Not holding those sins and weaknesses and failings against people, rather they are willing to bear the cost of the sins of others on themselves. That's what forbearance is. I bear the cost of your sin on myself. They forbear. They're patient and kind. They're long-suffering. Number two, uh, peacemakers are not easily offended. The peacemakers are not easily offended. It's been my observation in my own church experience that most of the time people are offended, there's no need for them to take offense. Most of the time I hear, as one of the pastors of this church, as sometimes you do, that so-and-so was offended at so-and-so, uh, there is almost no justifiable reason for that individual to feel offended. Peacemakers are not looking to be offended. And moreover, they love to cover the offenses of others. 
with that kind of love that Peter tells us covers a multitude of sins. They believe all things and hope all things, as Paul tells us we should in 1 Corinthians 13, and they adopt the most generous and charitable perspective in situations. Uh, They will, if they see the various options of how they can interpret a situation, whichever door is most charitable, that's the one they're walking through. Uh, They're not looking to be offended. Uh, The most holy and sanctified people in the world are those who are not easily offended. Beloved, I just encourage you at this point, uh, don't be the big toe of the church. Don't be the big toe of your family. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, in, In my home, at the present stage of life we're in, big toes are particularly vulnerable because there's Legos everywhere, and there's things that kids leave out, right? And the big toe is always somehow the part of your body that finds, you know, the painful thing, you know? There are people in churches, people in families, people in workspaces who are like this. They're just sort of looking to be offended and can so easily be disrupted uh, by sort of the inconveniences imposed upon us by others. Don't be the big toe of the church and the family. Don't be easily offended. Uh, Number three, peacemakers forgive fully and freely. Uh, We've spoken already about the need uh, for the Christian to show forgiveness. I spoke about this a couple of weeks ago in the Sermon on Mercy, but I want to say again what I said then. And this this for me, brethren, if we're going to be Bible people, this is a hill to die on. Unforgiveness is a non-option for Christian people. It's just not an option. The Lord tells us if you live in unforgiveness, Matthew 18, you don't understand the grace of God at all. The surest evidence that you are not a Christian, not a child of God, that you are a stranger to God's grace and his mercy shown to you in Christ is if you are unforgiving for those who sin against you in your life. Again, here's a situation. I have different doors open to me. Unforgiveness is one of those doors. Just consider as a Christian, that door is locked shut and double bolted and there's a big desk stacked behind it. I'm not going through that door. I can't live in unforgiveness. No, the peacemakers of the world, they love to forgive. They love reconciliation and restoration. They're eager for it. And moreover, when they forgive, they have a way of assuring you that you are forgiven. I had to repent to a brother. This probably a year ago now. We were at lunch. I had offended him in some way uh, that was really rotten of me. And I wanted to sit him down, treat him to lunch, and ask his uh, forgiveness. And he said, Alex, don't think on it ever again. It was so assuring that he loved me. He was making peace there. Hey, don't think about it. It's out of my mind. As the Lord has removed my sins, I'm not thinking about your sins. It's a wonderful way to forgive. He was being a peacemaker toward me. Number four, peacemakers are free from the need to vindicate themselves, to retaliate, and to seek vengeance. Peacemakers are free from the need to vindicate themselves, to retaliate, and to seek vengeance. They're free also from the compulsive need to assert their own rights in every situation. No, the peacemakers are those who turn the other cheek. They love their enemies. They overcome evil with good. They don't make everything personal. That tendency, everything becomes personal so quickly. Peacemakers are not that way. They're not thinking of themselves and their own rights. Listen to Romans 12, 16 through 18. Romans 12 has become for me a passage. Romans 12, 9 through 21. We'll just read 16 through 18. In my own personal life, if ever I'm anticipating relational conflict of some kind, I always go and pray through Romans 12. A remarkable passage. Verse 16 says this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And I love this. If possible, so far as it depends on you, 
live peaceably with all. If possible, and it's not always possible. I get it. So far as it depends upon you, and it doesn't always depend upon you. But if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Number, what am I on? Five. Uh, peacemakers know how to defer to the desires, needs, and interests of others. Peacemakers know how to defer to the desires, needs, and interests of others. They know how to count others more significant than themselves. Rex has been teaching us about that out of Philippians 2, 1 through 11. And beloved, I would just emphasize this to you. The Christian situation for us in relationships is not to try to get the scales as even as possible. The ideal we're called to is not fairness in relationships. Rather, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, we are to expect a deficit, and we're to accept that deficit. I'm to expect you're preferred above me. He doesn't say let everybody be even in the church. He says, no, 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 count others more significant than yourself. Uh, In other words, I want you to increase and me to decrease. Romans 12 will tell us, outdo one another in showing honor. It's a wonderful thing when everyone in the church has this posture. What a sanctified competition that is. No, you first. No, you first. No, please, I I want you to be blessed. Let me do something for you. Let me serve you. We're out doing one another, showing honor. We're not expecting everything to be even. No, we count others' needs more significant than our own. We defer to one another. And number six, peacemakers are marked by wisdom. They're marked by wisdom. Uh, Wisdom that shapes how they act and how they speak. Uh, Peacemakers, friends, are those who listen carefully. If you're not a good listener, you're probably not going to be a very productive peacemaker. Peacemakers listen carefully. They know how to consider and weigh a matter. They're sound in judgment. They can see things from all angles. They're wonderfully empathetic. They can sort of get in your world and kind of feel out the situation. They can understand the different concerns and burdens of others. They know how to play the long game. They're patient. They see the forest and not just the trees. They're not slaves of the moment. They don't overreact. They're wise and temperate and shrewd and discerning. For this, I'd encourage you to look at James 3, 13 through 18. We won't look at that now. Maybe make a note to look at that passage, how wisdom is productive to peacemaking. Number seven, peacemakers are not quarrelsome. They're not quarrelsome, but rather always oriented toward reconciliation and restoration. Now, they want to see people come together They love bringing back together what has been broken. They love harmony and brotherly love. There's a a kind of Christian that is just too ready to rage and crusade. We can slip into that as Christian people. We're ready for a fight. We're ready for a brawl. That's not the mind of Christ. Christ's people are not to produce conflict. We will have conflict in this world, but it won't be because of us, or at least it should not be. Listen to what John Stott says. It is clear beyond question throughout the teaching of Jesus and his apostles that we should never ourselves seek conflict or be responsible for it. It's clear we should never ourselves seek conflict or be responsible for it. On the contrary, we are called to peace, 1 Corinthians 7.15. We are actively to pursue peace, 1 Peter 3.11. We are to strive for peace with all men, Hebrews 12.14. And so far as it depends on us, we are to live peaceably with all Romans 12, 18. Number eight, peacemakers are careful and guarded in their speech. They're careful and guarded in their speech. They have self-control over their tongues. That part of the body that James says sets a forest ablaze. The peacemakers have learned control of their tongues. I love this quote 
from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary on this verse. He says, the peacemaker is a man who does not say things. That's the quote. The peacemaker is a man who does not say things. Just shut your mouth. Don't pour fuel on the fire. Learn how to control your tongue. Maybe you've been in situations, I know I have been where I know if I contribute more words at this point, it's going to make things worse. Alex, be a peacemaker and just don't say things. Just quiet your mouth. And then number nine, and maybe most important, peacemakers love, pray for, and pursue unity. Peacemakers love, pray for, and pursue unity. My friends, strife and conflict are easy to create. Easy to create. The market is oversaturated with conflict. Unity is one of the scarcest and most precious resources in the world. And these peacemakers are the world's leading supplier of it. Would that we had more of them. One of my favorite quotes in all of church history is uh, this quote, which was written from John Wesley to John Newton. Uh, John Wesley, the great evangelical preacher. John Newton, a great uh, pastor, hymn writer. Uh, John Wesley was not known to be a peacemaker. He's a good man, but he wasn't known for making peace. John Newton was, though. And John Wesley writes these lines to him. He says to John Newton, you appear to be designed by divine providence for a healer of breaches, a reconciler of honest but prejudiced men, and a uniter, happy work, of the children of God that are needlessly divided from each other. Oh, we need more John Newtons in an increasingly divided and polarized age, in an evangelical climate and church setting where people could be so divided and at one another's throats, we need reconcilers of the brethren. Friends, I'm happy to say of our elder board at this time, four pastors in this church, uh, we are enjoying a sweet spirit of unity in this season uh, and brotherly affection. These have been rich and precious days for our eldership. But suppose, as could happen, that that unity were jeopardized and that we became overrun with conflict and rivalry. And we decided we had to call someone in to help us. Like, we're just not making any progress here. We need to bring in a third party. I have friends who I would never call, sincerely. Because whatever tension and alienation is present, they will magnify it. And I'm happy to say I have many friends who would be the first on my list I'd want to call, who would be a reconciler of brothers, who would bring that kind of wholeness and peace and unity to a situation, that positive, constructive thing, who would take brothers who aren't seeing eye to eye and who would bring them together. Those are the peacemakers of the world. I'm less and less impressed with guys who know how to fight. It's a very easy thing to do. Seven-year-olds are great at it. Drunken men in bars are doing just fine at it. Uh, but to be a peacemaker and to bring peace in practical situations, requires deeper wells, greater resources of power and grace and influence. All right, that is the first main point. I said it would be the longest. Who are the peacemakers? This is the second question I'd like us to consider this morning. How may we become peacemakers? It's a beautiful thing, the peacemakers, right? How may we become ourselves peacemakers? And how can we grow in peacemaking ourselves? Here's the answer, and then we'll kind of open it up. We become peacemakers ourselves by becoming followers of Jesus Christ, 
the Prince of Peace. And learning from Him how to be those who, like Him, make peace. I'll read that again. We become peacemakers ourselves by becoming followers of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And learning from Him how to be those who, like Him, make peace. It's quite remarkable if you were to do, as I did this week in preparation for this message, to consider all the ways in which Jesus' ministry is connected with the idea of peace. Literally over a hundred passages I could read out to you now that associate the ministry of the Christ with the coming of peace and the making of peace. So let's start number one. No, I'm joking. I won't read all of them, but a few of them. I'd like us to consider the peacemaking ministry of Jesus from three angles. The first is this. The Old Testament foretold that when the Messiah would come, He would bring peace. The Old Testament foretold that when the Messiah would come, He would bring peace. The people of God in the Old Testament were constantly in search of what they call shalom. Do you know that word? Shalom. For God's peace, which was not just the absence of conflict. It was a lot more than that. It was for wholeness and rest and prosperity and human flourishing. There was the hope of Israel. And they looked forward to the day when they would experience shalom. They were looking to God to give them shalom, to give them peace. The most famous Jewish benediction of the Old Testament focused on this issue of shalom, this issue of peace. I refer to Aaron's uh, blessing in number six. You can hear Carrie Job sing about that on Christian radio right now. Now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. This is what God's people were after, God's shalom, God's peace. The peace of God that He would bring to His people, the kind of peace that God alone brings was always the hope of Israel, and they were looking for this day when we would have shalom. Well, increasingly, as redemptive history unfolded, the coming of peace and of shalom began to be associated with the coming of Israel's Messiah. One day the Christ will come, and He will be God's agent of peace. He will bring shalom. He will bring us into the promised land. He will bring us peace. Numbers of passages spoke about this, especially in the prophets. I'll just mention two very famous ones. One we think of as a Christmas text in Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In Isaiah 52, 7, uh, there the Lord anticipates the preaching of the gospel, the sound that will go forth. This passage is actually quoted in Romans 10 where Paul talks about the beautiful feet on the mountain who preach peace. There, Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them who bring good news, who bring the gospel, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The association of the Messiah with peace comes up again and again in the Old Testament, and it's right there at the beginning of the New Testament, at least in Luke's account of the gospel. You'll remember, do you remember who Zechariah is? Zechariah is John the Baptist's father. Uh, an angel of the Lord tells Zechariah that his wife's going to deceive, his wife Elizabeth's going to have a child, and Zechariah doesn't believe it. 
And so God makes him mute until the child is born as a kind of gentle rebuke of Zechariah to remind him of the faithfulness of the Lord. And then the child is born, and Zechariah's lips are loose for the first time, and what does he do? He prophesies over the child. John the Baptist is born, he prophesies about how this child has come to prepare the way for the Lord. He's come to be a kind of forerunner, and then he speaks about the coming of the Messiah. And Zechariah, he speaks about the sunrise that shall visit us from on high. That's the Christ. The sunrise is going to come, visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. At long last, God's agent of shalom has come, and He will lead us finally into peace. He will make peace for us. And of course, you remember the words of the angels in Luke 2, verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. What do we see here? It was foretold that central to the Messiah's ministry would be the bringing of peace, to inaugurate God's shalom. Now, the second angle here on Christ's peacemaking ministry, and that is to say that when He came, and when He dwelt among us, when the child was born and grew up and lived among us, when He came, He taught us peace, both by precept and by example. When He came, He taught us peace in His life. That one of my favorite biographies is about the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which I know some of you have read. The title of the biography is A Life of Gospel Peace. Uh, that title might be written over Jesus' biography. I think it could be written over the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, these chapters are telling us what a life of gospel peace, of shalom, of human flourishing look like. The Sermon on the Mount is a blueprint for a life of gospel peace, a life of shalom, of wholeness and prosperity. Jesus taught His people how to live lives of peace in His precepts, how to love our neighbors, how to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, how to live out the ideals of the kingdom of heaven, how to walk in peace and kindness and regard toward others, how to live and how to love. He taught His disciples meekness and mercy and peacemaking. He taught them the way of peace. He told them to turn the other cheek, to never seek vengeance, to not assert themselves over others, but to humble themselves before others. They were to labor for peace and harmony among people and were never to provoke strife and alienation. But not only did He teach us what a life of peace should look like by His precepts, He also lived it out before us. He modeled it. For us. He came as the Savior, who Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 tells us was meek and lowly in heart. Peacemakers are meek and lowly in heart, like the Lord Himself. He healed diseases. He fed the hungry. He calmed the storms. He forgave sinners. He reconciled people. He Himself did not assert His rights, but humbled Himself. He lived in service to others to bring reconciliation and harmony where there was once fracture and alienation and division. Moreover, he steadfastly resisted using the sword. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my disciples would be fighting. No, he would not conquer through military conquest, but through love, through sacrifice, and through reconciliation. No man has ever demonstrated more clearly what a life of peace should look like in his example and teaching than our Savior Jesus Christ. But now the third angle and the most important, and this is the big issue. In his death, 
He makes peace between God and man. In His death on the cross, He makes peace between God and man. In His death, Jesus becomes the ultimate peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. No greater example than the person of Jesus who died in our place to reconcile us to God. What is it that Jesus is doing arms spread wide on the cross? But bringing together rebels against God into united and reconciled relationship, bringing them into a standing of peace with God. It was foretold that this is what the Messiah would do. In Isaiah 53, that great passage that speaks of the suffering servant of the Lord, right in the heart of that suffering song, Isaiah says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. In the cross, Jesus is making peace for us. Between us as sinners and rebels, just and holy and righteous God. And we are at peace with God through His blood, such that we can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has made a way whereby sinful rebels can put down the weapons of their warfare, can be reconciled and brought into right relationship with the living God. Of course, the premier text that talks about this is Ephesians 2. You don't have to turn there, but in this passage, the Lord speaks about the peace that Jesus purchased on the cross between sinners like us and God Himself. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Jesus came to make peace through His blood. Peace between us and God, and peace between us and one another. Peace between Jews and Gentiles. Peace between disparate peoples divided from one another. Jesus comes as the great peacemaker to reconcile us to God, and to reconcile us to the children of God in the life of the church. So now back to Matthew 5, 9. When Jesus stood on the mountain and said, blessed are the peacemakers. You understand now, it wasn't theory for him. It wasn't a sweet sentiment. It wasn't wild-eyed idealism. Wouldn't it be great if we could all just get along? To make peace, he knew it would cost him his life. Blessed are the peacemakers. He knew what that would mean for him. It would mean the crown of thorns. It would mean the nails in his hands and his feet. It would mean bearing the wrath of holy God. Peacemaking for Jesus meant the cross. And peacemaking, friends, will often mean the cross for us, where we crucify our ambitions and our agendas, where we crucify our very selves, our wills, 
our pride, our desires, our own interests, me getting my way. No, we, like Him, must bear the cost to make peace. And friends, there is no peace without cost. Who's going to bear the cost? Jesus bore the cost in our place. We, too, like Him, are to carry our cross such that we might make peace. Well, here in Jesus, we have a model of peacemaking. We have here inspiration for peacemaking, a great example of peacemaking, but we have more than just an example. There is in this gospel of peace real power to make us peacemakers. How can I be a peacemaker? It is by believing the gospel and following this Savior who is our peace, the Prince of Peace, who deserves to be at the head of a whole colony of peacemakers who are following Him in this work of peacemaking. Friends, we will grow as peacemakers in proportion to our experience of the peace that Christ has bought for us. Here is found the inspiration and power for all peacemakers, for all those who would reconcile warring parties, for all those who would die to themselves in the pursuit of peace, for all those who would learn to forbear with others and to forgive others, for all those who would be reconcilers and repairers and healers of the breaches. All those who would bring back together what was broken and reconcile what has been split apart. Here we have inspiration and real power for married couples at odds with one another to treat one another more like rivals than as one flesh. For families torn apart by rivalry and selfish ambition and conceit. For churches overrun with factionalism and petty strife. For elder boards and deacon boards that become more about power and ego and personal agendas. Here we have inspiration and power for all men and women who would make peace. The peace that can come only to those who have been reconciled to God. Have been reconciled to others through the blood of Christ and the power of the gospel. This is how we become peacemakers by knowing and following the Prince of Peace, the great peacemaker, Jesus Christ. Now the third and final point, and most briefly. Who are the peacemakers? How may we become peacemakers? And finally, what is true of the peacemakers? What do we read in Matthew 5, 9? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Perhaps Jesus alone knew this to the fullest degree. He, the great peacemaker, would be called the Son of God indeed. God the Father is pleased to own Jesus as His Son, as He sees Him reconciling sinners to Himself, doing that work which the Father gave Him to do. As He sees Him in obedience, going to the cross to make peace. As He sees Him upon the cross, opening up a new and living way whereby sinners can come to God, whereby peace is made by His blood. Here is the great peacemaker, and here is the true Son of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. But here is the striking revelation of this passage. Those who, like Jesus, are peacemakers, they also will be called sons of God. I think about that. If, like Jesus, I am a peacemaker, God will own me as His son. All those who, like Jesus, are peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. We, too, will be owned of God as sons if we, like Him, make peace. 
Now, just say a word about that phrase, sons of God. This is not Jesus excluding daughters of God. That's not the way the language works here at all. The word sons of God is an official term. It's a legal term. It speaks to legal privilege, and it speaks also to those who carry the traits of their father. Legal privilege, genetic traits, which means to be called the sons of God is to say that we are entitled to all that belongs to the Father. Men and women alike, we will be called the sons of God. In other words, the heirs of God, the family of God, those who will inherit from the Father what belongs to Him. And it speaks also to genetic traits. What I mean by that is the sons of God are those who look like their Father. They bear His image. They look like Him. Say, that's the spitting image of His dad. That's sort of the idea. If I were to say to you, you're the son of a dog, what am I saying? You bear the traits of a dog, right? Say you're the son of God and say, you have the traits of God himself. You bear a resemblance to God. But one of the most wonderful things revealed in this sermon now is that we will be called the sons of God. Now, now humor me here, thought experiment. Forget everything you know about Christianity for a moment. Imagine that you're a pious Jew living in Jesus' day. Like you're a true, regenerate, believing Jew. You have faith in the promises of God. You're looking for the Messiah. You, you have believed God's promises. You're looking ahead to the Messiah who is to come. You believe the promises that were made to Adam and Eve in the garden and to Abraham and to Noah and to Moses and to David. You're a believing Jew. You would not have been accustomed to thinking of God as your father. If you were a believing Jew in Jesus' day, if you were Peter sitting there on the mountain, you would not have been accustomed to thinking of God as your father. You might think of him as the Almighty. You might think of him as the Lord, Adonai. Oh, you might think of him as the great sovereign, the king, the ruler, the ancient of days. You would not have thought of him as your father personally. You could conceive maybe in some way of the nation being regarded as God's child. That comes up a time or two in the Old Testament but you would not have thought of yourself in this kind of a way. And so we see one of the most wonderful things in this passage is that through Christ the Son, God is telling us He regards His own dear people as His children. There are more references to God as Father in the Sermon on the Mount than there are in the whole Old Testament. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus is telling us something new. God is pleased to be your Father to own you as His children. You will be called the sons of God. And think of these disciples. Here they are hearing this for the first time. We, such as we are, fishermen and tax collectors and nobodies, we will be called the sons of God? And how it would have enlarged their sense of privilege, their sense of status and dignity and worth. God will regard me as His own Dear child, what was novel to them would become fundamental and basic to New Testament Christianity. I mentioned this quote last week as we prayed the sermon, on, or excuse me, the Lord's Prayer together. A quote from J.I. Packer. Listen to these words from J.I. Packer. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, having God as his father. 
This is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life. It means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. The revelation to the believer that God is Father is in a sense the climax of the Bible. And here in our text, in Matthew 5, 9, this is the first time this idea is introduced. The first time it's introduced in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first time it's introduced in Matthew's gospel, that we can be the children of God. Which means it's introduced for the first time in the New Testament. The idea that God is the father of us, his children, first introduced to us in the New Testament in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So I ask you, how important is it that you and I be peacemakers? The first time Peter and the other disciples were told, you will be called the sons of God, was revealed to him in conjunction with this great matter of being a peacemaker. Isn't that something? Does that sort of raise the importance of this issue? Why do you think it is? There are many promises and rewards that are held out in the Beatitudes, but Jesus waits till now to identify our adoption, becoming the children of God. He identifies it with us being peacemakers. Why do you think that is? I suspect it is because this trait, this characteristic, this virtue is so close to the heart of God Himself. He Himself is a peacemaker, and He wants His children to look like Him. I don't know which of my own virtues or characteristics I won't, most would love to see my children emulate. Now, there aren't many of them, but I'm sure it would be whatever is that virtue in myself that I prize the most. I'd want to see that reflected in my son. That's my boy. That's my child. Doing like Dad taught him. That's the way we're to think about peacemaking. God is pleased to look on the peacemakers of this world and say, that, that's my child. The spitting image. He looked like his father. He's a peacemaker, just as I taught him to be through my son who made peace between us. Friends, what an incentive to put away all rivalry and strife and division in the church, in our families, in our communities. It might not be an overstatement to say that we most look like our Father when we are making for peace, when we're seeking to reconcile, to forgive, to draw men and women together. Last word I'll say is this. I've said this once already. I feel this very strongly as one of your pastors. I think that my fellow elders share this with you. Share this with me, excuse me, the burden. I'm very, very concerned, very concerned that in our particular Christian climate today, Christians are becoming dissatisfied with the Sermon on the Mount. They're becoming sort of bored with the Beatitudes. It's not getting us where we want to get. Really, is this all? Meekness isn't exciting to us. Mourning isn't exciting to us. Peacemaking, we're in a culture war, don't you know? Blessed are the peacemakers. We can so often be like Peter, who when he felt threatened, picked up the sword. 
And Jesus had to tell him, put your sword back. Friends, don't, don't be discontent with the path of life and the path of blessing the Lord holds out to us. Don't give up on the Beatitudes. It is the peacemakers of the world that will be called the sons of God. And therefore, let us do as we've been told to do by the Apostle Paul, to pursue those things that make for peace. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we say with the Jews of old that our hearts ache for shalom. They ache for peace. They ache for the kind of prosperity and flourishing and fruitfulness and wholeness that you alone, Lord, can bring. We thank you that in your Son you have made peace by his blood. You have come to preach peace to those who are far and peace to those who are near. Make us now as followers of Christ to be agents of that same peace. May we preach the gospel of peace to others, seeking to draw them into right relationship with the Lord. May we pursue peace in our relationships with one another. Make us to be the peacemakers of the earth, we pray. Thank you for the glorious privilege that for those who are at peace with God and are themselves peacemakers, they are regarded as your own dear children. Lord, we want to live more and more like you. We want to bring pleasure to our Father. We want to manifest your perfect and beautiful character to the world. Help us to do this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.